Well, good morning. So I want to share with you a very basic idea as we're getting started. Um, I don't think it's going to take much of a sell to get this across. Not knowing who you're dealing with can lead to a mistaken approach. Not knowing who you're dealing with can lead to make for a mistaken approach. So with the passing of Queen Elizabeth uh, relatively recently, many stories, many reflections upon the many years of her reign, yes, that's been certainly the case, but also many stories, many stories told about the woman herself, beautiful revelations about the character of this, this dear lady. It turns out that Queen Elizabeth had a sense of humor. You may have heard some of these stories. One in particular that I've read in several different places goes something like this, and it seems to have been a true account. Uh, There were a group of American tourists out wandering around, wandering around, I'm not sure, walking around at least her Balmoral estate there in Scotland, and they came upon this unassuming woman with a, a handkerchief about her head and this other man standing there with her. And they knew something as to the area in which they were walking, and they knew who lived in this area. So they said to this unassuming woman with the handkerchief about her head, who happened to be the queen, do you live nearby? And she said, why, yes, I do live nearby. Have you ever met the queen? No, I've never really met the queen. But then pointing to the bodyguard standing right by her, she said, but he has. And then from that point, uh, it was rather interesting that pictures were taken. Pictures taken by the queen of the bodyguard posing with the people. (laughs) Now, fortunately, she was gracious enough and had enough wherewithal to also have some pictures. I don't know how she did this in the conversation, but pictures were taken of her as well with these American tourists, though they had no idea who it was they were standing beside. And you can only imagine the guffawing the laughter, the amusement, the delight back at the estate as that story is, is told. And one could only wonder what those tourists are thinking now this day as they look at those pictures. So again, this is the idea. Not knowing who you're dealing with, not knowing who, you're, who, who you've encountered, can have an effect on how you deal with, how you interact, how you respond to that, that person. Let me move from the queen to the king, King Jesus. Do we know who we are dealing with? Do we know who he is and how we ought to be engaging with him, how we ought to be responding to him? This morning's intended to be the second in an installment, a short little series on the question of what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And last time, a few weeks ago, we looked at just simply what is What is the call of Jesus? What does that mean? What is the call of Jesus, and how is that significant for us today? This morning, we're going to shift into a related question stemming from that, and that is, what is the response of the disciple to that call? What is the response of the disciple to that call? And we're honing in, looking in especially in Mark's gospel. So Mark chapter 1, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me now. Uh, or you flip there, whatever you need to do on your screens. It's going to be on the screen there uh, behind me. Uh, Mark 1, we're going to read on through verse 15. Uh, We're going to be especially honing in, just as a heads up, on verses 14 and 15, but you need to hear the whole thing 
to really have a sense of the flow, where we are, the significance of verses 14 and 15, so we need to back it up starting in verse 1. So, let's hear now God's Word, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 on through verse 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, can we pray for a moment? Jesus, would you please help us, help us to know what it means to respond to your call. Uh, we know that that call was not something that was just for men and women of that time and that place, that you still today are extending that call to be yours, to come after you as followers, as disciples, as we often say, Christians. Would you help us to know what it means, though, to respond to that? Some of us here this morning need information. We really don't know. It's something of a blank slate. And so we need you simply in that sense to teach us, to help us to understand what does this mean. Others of us, other, others of us need reformation. Uh, we've got some slightly right, slightly wrong ideas as to what that means. And here again, we need you. We so desperately need you. Others of us here have heard it, have embraced it, understand it, and need to be encouraged in it, uh, truly encouraged in what it means to follow you and to respond to this call. Oh, Jesus, have mercy upon your people, upon us all here this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. We need to understand the context of these words, the context of the message that we, well, the text that we just read a moment ago. Please understand, this was a hostile environment. This was a very hostile environment in which Jesus was speaking these words. And I mean that at least in, in two ways. First, it's not a happy place. This is enemy-occupied territory.
territory. If you had eyes but to see, walking around in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, you would have seen everywhere you looked signs of an occupying army, the Romans, the Roman Empire. It's their, it's their territory. This is enemy-occupied territory. This is not a happy place, nor is it a happy time. In verse 14, we got word already, already, that John... This is John the Baptist, how he's oftentimes referred to. This is John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus, has been arrested. He is in prison, awaiting, he doesn't know this, but he's awaiting his execution. This is not a happy uh, time. It is not a happy place. You may wonder what's going on behind, what's the backstory behind John's imprisonment. Well, You can read some of the other Gospels. You can actually also read Josephus, the Jewish historian who writes about this as well. John has been locked away because of, and I'll just simplify it by saying, some courtroom, some drama within Herod's courtroom. And I won't go into all the details there, but that's why John has found himself locked away and in prison. But it's actually a deeper reason as to why John, the forerunner of Jesus, is locked away and awaiting his execution. And it has to do not just with um, a, a temporal king and the drama in his court, but also we would have to say a parasitic insurrectionist ruler, Satan, who's already been mentioned in, John, in Mark 1, a spiritual war, a deeper resistance... And the fact that John is now imprisoned, the forerunner of Jesus, that he has been locked away is a reflection of this deeper hostility and this war, this spiritual war that is taking place. It may not be seen. It may not be the placards. It may not be on anybody's agenda. We're going to do this because of this. But that's what's going on. It's the deeper reason as to why John is there. So not a happy time, not a happy place. This is a hostile environment into which Jesus enters. Jesus enters with this message, the gospel of God, as it is described there in uh, verse 15, 14 and, and 15, the gospel, the gospel of God. What's a gospel? What's a gospel? Well, here in the tw- Western culture, 21st century, we've added a lot of meaning to what that means. But let, you need to understand what it meant in the first century. In that part of the world at that time, what the word gospel meant simply, meant, simply put, it means news. And not just everyday normal news like, oh, I had black coffee. No, no, it, it, it's, it's history-making, life-changing news. That's a gospel, and that's the way the word was used at the time. It's the kind of news that we actually have ancient documents that refer to, use it in this way, that refer to a great military victory, or the birth of a king. It's the kind of news that's big enough, grand enough, important enough that you would send heralds out into the countryside, into the highways and byways, the towns and the villages, that people would know whatever this great thing, this history-making, life-changing thing that's happened, you would send heralds out with this gospel news. Okay? And Jesus comes with the gospel of God. What is that gospel? Well, Mark tells us in verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. This is the gospel message that Jesus is the herald of, that he proclaims. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's 
purposes anchored back in all eternity, flowing into, the space, into time and space, his purposes, unstoppable, are now being realized with Jesus having come. This thing long awaited, greatly anticipated, deeply needed, the, the kingdom, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of heaven has come. Different, you see it different, listed, described different ways in different places in the New Testament. The kingdom, the rule and reign of God has come. That's the message. That's what Jesus proclaimed. That's what he came to speak about and teach about. And that's the weight, the burden of this passage. The kingdom of God is here, and we need to rightly respond to this news. The kingdom of God is here. That's the news. We need to rightly respond to this news. Now, what would that mean? What would that mean? Well, we're shown that just in this little text here, verses 14 and 15. Now, just as full disclosure, there's actually three parts to the answer. We're going to deal with the first two parts this morning. The plan is next week to deal with the third part, okay? But this morning, we're going to deal with parts one and two. What does it mean, rightly, to respond to this news, the gospel of God, that the kingdom of God has come? What does it mean for us still today to rightly respond to that news? Jesus tells us to repent and to believe. Okay? That's what the text says. Verse 15, to repent and to believe. Now, let's look at this together for a little bit. So first... The first point, the first part of the response, not the only part, but the first part of the response, and that involves repenting. So read it again, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does this, this mean? What is, it, what is Jesus speaking of when he uses this, this terminology? To repent implies uh, well, not just implies, it means, it demands a, a turning, a change of direction from the path on which you've been going and a turn from that to another. That's literally what the word means, to turn to change your path, your direction. What kind of change? What sort of repenting are we speaking of here? Well, if you can bear with me, I'm going to describe it in two ways. It's in your outline if you've got the bulletin there. First, it means a deep change, and secondly, it means a full turning. A deep change in terms of how, down, how far down in there does it go, and a full turning in terms of the extent of your life, the breadth of your life, how far it goes, how much is involved, okay? So to turn this deep change that Jesus is calling for here, it goes beyond the surface. Emotions can certainly be involved, but it involves more than just being sorry. It involves more than just feeling bad or sad for what you've done. Repentance goes far below, beyond the surface. It goes far beyond just, the, if I can put it this way, the waves up at the top, but rather it goes down deep into the currents, the deep undercurrents that are driving those waves. This is something deep. This is something profound. It goes not just, it goes beyond the surface down to the, the, the uttermost depths of the human person. J.I. Packer puts it this way. 
The New Testament word for repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are changed and one's whole life is lived differently. The change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly. Mind, judgment, will, affections, behavior, lifestyle, motives, and purposes are all involved. Repenting means starting to live a new life. You get the idea. This repentance, this deep change involves an inner transformation that works itself out in outward change. That's partly what we're talking about here, a deep, deep change. So that's how far down it goes. And now, okay, in terms of breadth, how far out does it go? It's a full turning. It's a deep change and a full turning, not partial, so not surfacy, and not partial either, but a full turning. Repentance demands a renouncing of our sin. Every thought, word, and deed that we know to be wrong, we will renounce, we will forsake, we will turn from without any compromise whatsoever, without any addendums, without any footnotes, without any partiality given to some aspect of our lives, some something that we can't bear to let go of without any compromise whatsoever. That's what the full turning demands. Jesus speaks of this. For instance, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, Jesus speaks of the absoluteness of this turning. Matthew 5, starting in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, is Jesus speaking strongly here? Yeah. Yes, he is. Is he calling for self-mutilation? No. He's speaking as strongly and as graphically as he possibly can to seize our attention. He's not calling for self-mutilation, but what theologians for centuries have referred to as mortification, the putting to death of our sin, and a, with a radical approach to it. No compromises being allowed. So a renouncing of our sin, that's, the part, that's part of the full turning, but there's something else. A renouncing of our sin and a repaying of our debts. A renouncing of our sin and a repaying, where necessary, of our debts. Old Testament, New Testament. We see the principle of what's referred to as restitution. Making right what we have done wrong. Repairing the damage that we have caused to other people. That's part of repentance, too, the biblical definition. For instance, look with me at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we have an example of this that Jesus commends quite uh, enthusiastically, I guess we could say. Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. He entered Jericho, that's Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. 
And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is commending this man in his act of humble restitution, the repaying of the debts, that the, of, of the trying to make right the wrongs that he had, had caused, to repair the damage that he had brought into the lives of so many, many people. This is part of what it means where necessary, where applicable, to repent. A deep change, a full turning, and that's part of what it means to rightly respond to the call of Jesus. C.S. Lewis writes of this in his book, Mere Christianity, and it's a paragraph well worth our hearing, so I'm going to read this to you. Now, what was the sort of hole man had got himself into? He had tried to set up his own to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor, that is the only way out of a hole. This process of surrender, this movement, full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. He's right. Lewis is absolutely right. Let me just build on, on that, if, if I may. This, um, this process of surrender, this movement to full speed astern, has a beginning, and then it continues on lifelong. It has a beginning, and it continues on for the rest of our lives. A posture, a heart's attitude of repentance. It's not a one-and-done thing. Martin Luther, you may know, uh, part of the 95 theses that he posted on that Wittenberg door, October 31st, 1517, he led off with this. The entire life of believers should be repentance. Our posture every day through the day is turning back from our sin because that's what we're continually turning towards. Our GPS is flawed. It's broken, and we continually have to be turning back to Jesus turning back to Jesus, which then brings me to the second observation, not just that it's not a one-and-done thing, that it's continual and lifelong, this turning to Jesus, but can I encourage you? This is the second thing. When it feels scary, this idea of surrender, who are you surrendering to? Who are we called to surrender to? Who are we called to lay down our arms before? and yield the whole of our lives to, to Jesus. This one who is 
is, is, and we never want to say was, who is the friend, as the Gospels tell us, of tax collectors and sinners, so much so, so much that he, does he delight to be in the presence of such people like us, that he caused a tremendous scandal among the religious elite because such is his delight to be with the likes of us, tax collectors and sinners. Let that encourage your heart. It is, it is never safe or wise to surrender to just anyone, right? We know a lot of people in our lives that are not safe or wise to surrender to. But Jesus is always safe and wise to surrender ourselves to, and fully so. The good news that he has come to bring is that God's kingdom is here, and part of the right response to that is this repenting, which then takes us to the second part of the answer, which is the other side of the coin. These two things go hand in hand. They are inextricably linked, these two things, the repenting and now the believing repenting and the believing. So let's look again at the text, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What does this mean? What does it mean to believe the gospel? I should start off by saying this, that just like with the repenting, this believing is continual. It's ongoing. It's not like I believed one day. No, 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 no. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple of Jesus, you are continually repenting and continually believing in everything, in all, in all ways. Now, what is this believing? What, is it, what does it mean? We have to say it is at least this much. It is an ongoing trust. It goes far beyond just intellectual assent and agreement to big ideas and principles. It goes far beyond that. Yes, of course, the Christian faith has a lot of content, and this belief begins with that content. But it doesn't stop there. And I have to say this to Presbyterians and Reformed folk we really need to hear that sentence again and again and again. It starts with the content, but it's not meant to stop there. This is something that is beyond intellectual, that is intended to be rightly understood, deeply relational, deeply, deeply relational. We're not talking here about assent to principles. We're talking about giving your life to a person to a person, to leaning into him, to longing for him, to depending upon him in everything. To say, I believe in Jesus is not just a statement that you believed he was a person that lived in history and you're angry enough to defend it. <laughs> to say, I believe in Jesus is a statement, is a, it is a profound statement of trust and commitment and reliance in the deepest possible way. 
So you're all sitting in chairs, most of you, sorry, most of you, those of you who can. So let's run with this as an example. Okay, so you can tell me, I believe that chair will hold me as you're standing there looking at it. Yes, I believe that chair is sturdy enough to hold me. Thanks, I'm done. Walk away. No, wait, 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 wait. That's not believing in this sense that the chair will hold. Believing in this sense is you get your keister in the chair. That's what it means to believe in the sense that Jesus is speaking of here. Not just looking at it, not just as an intellectual proposition. Yes, if I put my weight into it, it'll hold me, but rather putting your weight into it and trusting that it'll hold you. Believing. Believing, okay, this is the, the sub point though. Believing in what? Believing in what? And we need to be really clear on this point. What is the message itself? We say, I believe in Jesus for, how do you finish that sentence? What is the gospel? What is this message? When Jesus says, when Jesus speaks of the gospel, what does he mean? What does he mean? Well, please hear me. It goes far beyond our individual salvation from sin. When Jesus speaks of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, he is speaking, yes, of a message that goes something like, Jesus, this is Jesus' work to restore the fallen man or woman to a right relationship with God. Yes, that's true. Partially. That's not the full message. That's not the full gospel. That's not everything that he came to be and to do. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he came to preach. That was his message. So building on the message of the Old Testament prophets for centuries preceding him, what then is the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel of the kingdom is speaking to God's rule and reign touching down on this earth. So the fuller definition, the fuller understanding then of what Jesus means when he comes proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, it means he's referring to his work of salvation, his work, his accomplished work of salvation to rescue his people from judgment for sin and to renew this whole creation that forever we would have a place to live this out in relation to him. It's the full thing. It's a work of rescue of sinners and renewal of the cosmos. It's not one or the other. People on the left want to emphasize one part. People on the right want to emphasize the other. And both are wrong. It's both at the same time, the fullness of Jesus' work, the message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, 
That's what he came to proclaim and is still proclaiming. And that's what we are called to believe, this message of the king. Let me put it this way. When Jesus showed up, he sparked something of a revolution, okay? It's sort of like the old, old stories, the old Robin Hood stories, right? The the, the stories of King Richard the Lionhearted come back from the Crusades to take back his throne from the wicked, evil Prince John, to reclaim what was rightfully his all along. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's the rightful king come to reclaim what what is his. Or for you Narnia fans, which I hope is all of you, I got an amen. That's amazing, almost. Um, and I don't remember what I was going to say. I'm so thrown off. Prince Caspian. Wow. So it's, it's like with Prince Caspian and his rallying of the Narnians to, to and work this, 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 this war of insurrection against the evil King Miraz to reclaim that which was his, to sound the horn, to rally the troops. That's what Jesus is doing. He is sounding the horn saying, come follow me. Do you see how great a Savior this is? You see how great our problem is, how great our need is, how great a Savior we have, how great a salvation we have. It's not a little bit. It's it's everything. It's everything. It's what makes us such, such good news. What would it mean to follow such a king? Okay, take a step back. What's the big story? This world, this whole story, story started off really, really well. Genesis 1 and 2, right? Shalom. Everything is beautiful. Everything is right, just the way it was made and intended to be. It is, as they say, going swimmingly, harmoniously. I mean, that's like the bar, right, of how things are meant to be, how God designed it to be and created it to be. And then, and then comes the fall where sin enters the picture, human rebellion enters the picture, and every, all that beauty gives way to ugliness, and the harmony gives way to disintegration in every way imaginable. So shalom gives way to disease and emptiness and broken relationships and poverty and injustice and racism. That's the root of it all right there in the fall. In in the fall, such is the great need, such is our great Savior come into this world, not just to repair it, but to reclaim it, to renew it, to renew it all. What then would it mean for us to be followers of such a great Savior who's come to rescue the sinner and renew and reclaim his creation? What does it have? It has to mean not just one or the other, but both. Not just personal evangelism, but societal engagement because of how great a Savior He is and how great His passion is for sinners and the world. And to say which one is more important than the other is a false choice. It's not a one or the other. It's both. I mean, Micah chapter 6, 8, not Micah Lee. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What do we read in those ancient, ancient words? Some of us have heard these as long as we can remember. 
We just don't, we just forgot what it meant. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. For some number of years, um, this past year being the first exception to that because I wasn't part of it, um, the teams that go to the Cherokee mission in the hills of North Carolina, in preparing them for that time, I will have them read an essay, an essay that talks about the significance and the meaning, the significance of the kingdom of God. I want to read you a paragraph from that, that I don't even can't even remember how many teams we've talked about this. And this is like, this is why we're going. This is why we're going to do the VBS and why we're going to repair the porch at the same time. This is what the author says. It's not just about individuals gaining forgiveness so that they can secure their destinies in heaven. It is also about God's kingly reign, his will coming to bear in all areas of life here and now. It's not just about saving the soul, but about caring for the body, about healing brokenness and reconciling divisions and conflicts. It's not just about evangelism, but also about seeking justice, overcome injustice, seeing the poor fed, healing divisions of race and social class, and seeing brokenness and pain healed with the love and power of Jesus. Wherever there is need and brokenness in our world, the good news is that Jesus has come to begin the process of making it right. Rather than the gospel being just about how we get to heaven, it's more like seeing heaven break into our world. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of the kingdom. That's the gospel of God, what Jesus proclaimed and is proclaiming and what we are called to hear, repent, and believe continually. So name your issue. Abortion is important to Jesus. Gender confusion, child abuse, sex trafficking is important to Jesus. Political corruption the pollution of the environment, addictions, whether it be pornography or opioids, gun violence, important to Jesus. And for his followers who engage with those issues in a kingdom-oriented manner, here's where this goes. For his followers who engage with those issues in a kingdom-oriented manner, that is every bit as honoring to the king as becoming a missionary and going to the Sudan. Because it's both. That's the greatness of our king, the greatness of our salvation, the greatness of our savior. Those things are not just good things to do. They are a simple, essential applications of the gospel. Essential because they're part of the essence of it. The king has come. The kingdom has come. That's the news. The king has come. The kingdom has come. To rightly respond is to repent and to believe. To repent and to believe. I'm going to end with this. Isn't this a bit much... Some of you are thinking, 
isn't this a, taking it too, a little too far? Isn't this a little extreme? I mean, that's, whew, that's kind of full-throated. I mean, that's like everything. Is that really called for? Well, that depends on who's asking. And by that, I don't mean you. I mean him. That de depends on who we're speaking of, who's worthy of this faith and repentance. And Tim Keller tells this story of a speaker that he heard in 1971. Uh, the speaker, her name was Barbara Boyd. And Keller tells us, I've heard him tell us a story no few times. It's stuck with him. And for, when you hear it, you'll understand why. This is what he said. She, this is what he said that she said. And now I'm saying it. And then you can say it. If the distance between earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, was the thickness of a piece of paper, the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our galaxy is less than a speck of dust in the part of the universe that we can see. And that part of the universe might just be a speck of dust compared to all the universe. And if Jesus is the Son of God who holds all this together with the word of His power, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? <laughs> then she asked all of us to go outside for one hour and say nothing. Just think about what this means to you. If I could get away with that this morning, that's how I'd end this service. You see why it stuck with him. She made her point really well. Really well. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. There is no dichotomies or lines or divisions to be drawn between stages of maturity or grades or levels of what it means to follow Jesus. If you're a, if you're a, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. That's what it means. To be in relationship with him means to know him, to have embraced him, to bow before him continually as Lord and Savior, not one, not the other, but both, Lord and Savior. If you're hearing His call, the only way to rightly respond to that call is to repent and to believe. Let's pray. Lord, this news... This news of the kingdom is better than we imagined. It's not a to-do list. It's not a list of commands, something that we have to do to be right with you, for the world to be right, but rather what you've done. It's news, News that you're calling us to respond to. This, this news, this message is better than we could have imagined because it's news. And this news is bigger than we imagined. Our need is bigger. The world's need is bigger, deeper, higher, greater. 
a savior in the richest possible sense, one to rescue and renew and reclaim all things, a king to reign and rule and for us to follow. Jesus, would you please help us to hear your call? Would you please be so merciful as to break the spell, the enchantment, the lies of a little gospel that your church too long has bought into? Would you help us to hear the call, to respond as you intend for us, long for us to, to repent and to believe, to live into that and to proclaim it in all we do and say. And this we ask in your name. Amen.